What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thank you very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, live from Post 9 at the New York Stock Exchange. Front and center this hour, the best start to earnings in a decade. Is it enough to keep stocks moving higher as another critical week now is underway? We discuss and we debate with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour, Brenda Vangelo, Joe Terranova, Jenny Harrington, Steve Weiss, all of whom are here at Post 9 with me. Dow's been up four weeks in a row. Joe, 55 S&P companies, six Dow components this week. Uh, Yields are up today and the market's trying to figure out, I think, what to make sense of uh, all of it. Yeah. Look, I've said 4,200 for the S&P. I think that's where the market's going, but I'm not excited about the setup for this week. I don't like a two-year trading at 4.2. I don't like a 10-year trading at 3.6. I don't like underneath. uh, We've got a lot of earnings, but we've also got a tremendous amount of Fed speak. And that Fed speak is going to play off the New York State manufacturing reading this morning, which for the first time uh, has brought manufacturing out of contraction territory. So I think when you're, we're thinking about earnings, where do you find the strength? It's probably in the following week where we get the mega caps because that's really when the strength has been all year that's propelled this market moving forward. So might have a little bit of a challenged week. And on the other side of that, maybe we could pick up the upside momentum towards 4,200 with technology and mega caps. Jenny, we have the best. We had the best first week of earnings results in a decade. Savita Subramanian over at Bank of America is talking about that today. 90% have beat. Uh, banks obviously accounting for a lot of that. J.P. Morgan, thank you very much. Uh, but nonetheless, even as expectations are low and you're within an earnings recession, we might be asking ourselves once again as we go throughout this earnings season, where's the dramatic collapse that people have been talking about now for months? Well, I don't think we're going to have a dramatic collapse. But I think we're going to have this continuation of cross currents clashing and crashing into each other. And it's interesting because I feel like anywhere you look, you see it, right? You see ISM getting better, but inflation remains persistent. We saw a great week of earnings last week. And to your point, it's the best since 2012 to the start of earnings. But this week could be weaker. And if we think about what's backing all of this up, that idea of rolling recessions that we've had, that would kind of feed into everything continuing to move asymmetrically. I read a really interesting, um, an interesting single sentence over the weekend, and this is what it says. It says, taking a step back, rarely has so much ostensibly conflicting news been thrown at investors, creating extreme levels of uncertainty and concern. And I think that's where we are. Extreme levels of uncertainty and conflicting news are are on our plates. It's making this job really hard. Well, look at what the market's doing. um, It screams, don't know what to do. Right. Right. And you don't want to place a bet too big in either direction because you could easily be wrong whether it's on earnings or the Fed or any bit of economic data or, frankly, anything else. Yeah, and, and I agree with Jenny. Nobody's looking for a dramatic collapse for this quarter. They're just looking for a downtrend, continuing to move down. 
And look, I'd be hard pressed, anybody would be, statistically, it'd be impossible to show where earnings came in in any period below expectations. They always come in above because it gets reset. Yeah, but I mean, it's a, to and the it, degree at which they do. Are you surprised, right. though, at how, and Kramer used the word today, resilient, the stock market has been as negative as, as you yes. have been? Kramer's word is like, we haven't had resilient for 18 months. We've got resilient. I mean, the market, as Joe said, was marching towards 4,200 on the S&P in the midst of what's been reasonably weak economic yep. news, reasonably hawkish Fed speak yep. in light of that economic news itself. Yeah, and resilience definitely one word to describe it. The other word is disconnected from reality of what's going to happen. So I don't think it's particularly good news that the economy and company reports have been so resilient because that just says that the Fed's going to move more. more. And, uh, and they are. Uh, the inflation numbers, I mean, the market for the first time, I think, really didn't just do a, a resounding hurrah after we saw the PPI and CPI because the core numbers weren't good. Wage numbers weren't good, in meaning that they weren't good for Fed policy. So the way I see it playing out is that Fed action once again and credit tightening, which it's also a lag for credit tightening. You don't see the impact of it just yet. So both of those are going to conspire to keep the market, I believe, well, lower. Unless, I don't understand, though, why it's moved higher, I'm, except for the fact that I think you have a new type of investor in the market. So you've aged out a lot of the older investors, and what you're left with now is new people over the last 15 years that are used to V-shaped recoveries and the Fed riding to the rescue. And that's the dialogue now. The Fed's going to ride to the rescue. It's not going to get out of hand, and we're going to cut. The Fed's going to cut at the end of the year. What about if they're not going to hike as much as you think or say, because as you know, the Treasury Secretary said in an interview over the weekend, credit tightening and banks yeah. restricting lending to some degree are going to do a lot mm -hmm. of the Fed's work for it. Agreed. And my narrative wouldn't change. If the Fed didn't go another 25, it wouldn't matter. Because what I'm focused on is what they've done to date and what happened with the credit cycle post-SVB. That's enough to really hit the economy. Yeah, but Diamond, Jamie Diamond was saying, you know, it's not like we're running around saying, you know, restrict lending, tighten those standards. He was very clear but about that But if you look at the, the numbers, call. well, he's not, because they've always had tight lending standards. But you've got a whole shadow banking community. There was an article over the weekend about the search is on for more collateral. You have these loans that were not collateral-based. So the shadow banking, sector, which is bigger than the banking sector. And we saw in the lending, in the loan survey, that it was down, what, $45 billion or something. So that's there. They're not cutting back because they've always had super high standards, but others are. So, Brenda, um, what do you make of sort of how we enter this week, right? Dow's been on this winning streak up four weeks in a row. Uh, we got the, you know, the, the metal hitting the road, uh, so to speak, uh, in terms of or the rubber hitting the road in terms of, you know, what's going to happen this week. And we're off to a, a pretty good start. Well, I think it's certainly encouraging the start that we're off to, especially with the financials group, because I think there was a lot of fear going into earnings about just how ugly some of those early reports might be. And that being said, I mean, a lot of the big money center banks are really are, are beneficiaries of a lot of those deposit dollars 
that have uh, presumably left a lot of the regional banks. So I don't think we're necessarily out of the woods yet. We still have a lot to go. But I do think what we might see this year is that um, earnings expectations for the first half, which are you know a little more conservative, might end up being a little too conservative. But as we look to the back half of the year, there is more growth anticipated in Q3 and especially in Q4. And depending on how the economy goes, we might find that those end up being a little bit too aggressive. So maybe we have, you know, earnings that are a little bit better in the first half, but not so great in the in the second half. And all in, it's a kind of a wash. But I think what's really going to be important is kind of understanding the trajectory of the economy and how that plays into our belief in how real those 2024 estimates are. And when we start looking to those really kind of in the midsummer of this year. Uh, but I will say I have been very surprised at how resilient the market has been, particularly mm -hmm. in light of the Silicon Valley Bank debacle and First Republic and others. Uh, we really have been an incredibly resilient. Uh, uh, so that's encouraging, but also gives us a little bit of pause. I, I just don't think there's a right. lot of for multiple expansion here. In the you market. know, Joe, Mike Wilson says we're, quote, far from out of the woods with this bear market. Earnings forecasts remain too optimistic. We think the recent collapse in breadth is the market's way of warning us. We are far from out of the woods, um, as I said, with, with the bear market. What do you want? What do you think? What do you think? I, I think that's well understood. I think it's well known. We'll find out ultimately if it proves to be correct or not. I'm skeptical of it. One of the reasons why I'm skeptical, skeptical of it. Skeptical of Mike Wilson's view? I am. And one of the reasons why is look at State Street's earnings today. Look at the amount of outflows that they witnessed, $26 billion in outflows from its investment products. Scott, the expectation was that they'd see $8 billion of inflows. The quarter prior, one year ago, there was $51 billion in inflows. So $26 billion in outflows, that tells you where sentiment really is towards investment products. And I think we've priced in this very ominous outlook already into the market. That's why I, I, I just don't think that going back and retreating to those October lows is credible without some form of an exogenous event. Well, how, is, how have we priced in, how have we priced in, we haven't even priced in a recession. Well, well okay, sorry. Ever, our earnings, have, have we priced in an earnings decline I, I, from I, where we are now? We, have, we haven't, really. I think, I think we have. I think we've priced in, earnings are going to be down 7% on the quarter. We haven't priced in, I think let's valuations say, valuations got ahead of that last year and saw what was coming, that there would be margin compression, you saw valuations co correct in all equity sizes, classes, so and what, strategies. I want to make sure I'm clear on this because right now I'm not. Okay. You think that the stock market has priced in a recession? Yes, I said that four months ago on Closing Bell with you. I say that again today. Stock market I, I, has priced I understand. in a recession. I, when you look at the multiple expansion, right, you have to be convinced then that this is the trough in earnings this quarter because the multiples expanded to 18 times. So $220 is the trough. Right, right. And I don't, that 200 is not priced into the market. When the market goes up because four months passed. in a row, hold up, Jenny, when the market goes up four months in a row, I don't think it's priced in. If the market went down four months in a row, I'd say, yes, it's priced in. Have certain stocks priced in? Yes. Has the market overall? Absolutely not. I don't know how you can draw that conclusion. Joe. I, you're cherry, Hold on, Jenny. I got you're, you. You're cherry picking your time frame. <laughs> I, see, I, I got think you. what That's the right. market correctly. I'm talking about today. You're saying today. The market correctly during the course of 2022 right. priced in what was coming ahead. Priced in the earnings recession. The market is a, is a very efficient discounting mechanism, and I think the market did its job 
June, July, August, September, October, even into the end of the year with a lot of mega cap equities and pricing in the environment where we would see earnings contract, enter the earnings recession, which certainly had the valuation recession. And I think the market has also understood that there's been this rolling recession, as Ed Yardani keeps talking about, not a universal recession, that there are select industries that already are in recession. I, I, I don't... Rolling recession's one thing, okay? I mean, and that's, that's kind of a, a strange term, okay? Nothing falls off the cliff all at once, not every sector. So doesn't mean to me the rolling recession, if those companies are seeing a recession, then they're going to recover in those sectors, right? I think that you'll see the others come down as well. And that, I, I just go back to, when the market multiple has expanded to 18 times, which is far above the historical multiple, I just don't see that as price in the recession. Now, I agree with you that now we're not gonna hit the old lows. I think that's completely out of the question. Is it 3,400, is it 3,500? I don't know. But I also don't believe we're off to a new market. I didn't a say new that. Bull market. No, I didn't well, say that. But if you priced oh, in a recession already, what's the next step? Because that—that's in fact why the market has had a 20% recovery from the fall. It's already priced in the worst-case scenario. Right. Um, no, no one is sitting here and advocating that we're going back up to 4,800. I'm not saying that. You need a tremendous amount of good feel in the market for that to occur. But I think the market has done its. Well, you're job. talking about price. You think the price has already marked the Discounted, low. Discounted, reflected. And, and in fact, earnings as well. It remains to be seen whether earnings So what's your downside? What's your, what's your okay, risk so reward hold. in the market? Jenny Harrington. Thank you. I'm dying here. Really? I couldn't tell. <laughs> Poor Scott. Oh, you need to manage me and it's not Please. easy. So it's interesting Please. because if you look at a chart of what the market multiple is based on historical inflation numbers, what you see is that we've steadily moved in exactly the right direction. So as inflation's moved from 9% CPI a year ago to 5% now, what multiple of the market gen so I don't think you should look at that historical multiple. I'm not sure that's the right way to deal with it. I think you need to say, when inflation's at 5%, what's a reasonable market multiple? And when you look at this data, you actually see that this kind of like 16 times to 18 times makes sense. I think Joe is completely spot on that in the middle of October is when we were really discounting $220 earnings. When I was on last week with you, Bob Pisani was on, and he showed us quarterly numbers. We for are the assuming if the $220 of earnings is the trough. I, and I think it is. And if you look at Bob Pisani's numbers by quarter, you see it's like $50 for Q1, $50-ish for Q2, and then they really start to pick up. And it seems like that's a more reasonable place to be heading. So I think we're heading to $240 earnings in, two, in 2024. You take that, you put 18 times on that, and it's actually kind of reasonable. But this is where I just want to get back to the Mike Wilson thing for one sec, because I don't think the right way to frame the question is, are we out of the bear market? I would argue that we are definitely out of the bear market. And to Jim Cramer's point about the market showing resilience, I would argue that we've been showing resilience since the end of October last year. So that time frame has been longer. I think the real question is, is are we, are we in the clear with the bull market? Right. And like if you look at a chart of the market, we've been so range bound. I'm not sure we're in the clear with the bull market, like really surging to new highs. But I think we're out of the woods with returning to October 2020, sorry, 2022 numbers. Here's how to respond. There have been six times I just Googled it where in six periods in U.S. history since World War II, where the market has had where the economy's had inflation of five percent or more. Six data points. OK, mm -hmm. I'm going to take 150 years of market activity and valuation over six data points, number one. Number two, even if I did take those, and you're looking at it, 2008, 5%. What happened in 2009? 
1969 to 71, what happened in 72 to 74. We've seen major recessions and major declines right. in the market. So taking your cherry picking of just 5% inflation, which connotes a growth environment, I'd say that's wrong. You have to look at Fed policy at the same time. You can't just look at inflation. All right, let's inflation. pivot then. And why don't you, since you're you know, getting comfortable with Google, why don't you Google <laughs> Alphabet shares and AI, because what's going to come up is a rough day you know, for Alphabet. It's, it our chart, it's our chart of the day. It's, in fact, the worst day in two months. Um, New York Times had an interesting piece. You probably have heard about it by now. Quote, unquote, panic at Google as Samsung considered adopting Bing as its search engine. So, you know, you have that call of Weiss. You own, yep. you own Alphabet. Yep. And then, Brenda, I'm coming to you next. So, Weiss, you own Alphabet, which does get, by the way, reiterated overweight at Morgan Stanley because of AI. So yeah. what, do you, what do you want to make of this? So uh, it's concerning. So I've got to do some work in it. I've got to look into it. Uh, Samsung could just be negotiating. Uh, keep in mind that, that Google's at 90% share. And if you want to get your contract renewal price down, what are you going to do? You're going to float a story that we're thinking of going elsewhere. So right now, I'm going to assume that's all it is. I don't believe anybody's going to switch over to Bing. They may add Bing as another button, but I don't think they're going to switch over to Bing when you even don't know what the regulation's going to be on using but chat or any other. But it just, add, it just adds way. to the narrative that yes. has been out there for the last few months Agreed. that it's Microsoft in the leadership role here. Yeah and not Alphabet. That, right, that's but sort you, of a narrative that had emerged, whether it's right or wrong. Right, no, I think it's phenomenal for Microsoft, but if you take a look at the Morgan Stanley report, there are a couple of things that really have to go right. So I wouldn't say that gave me a ton of confidence in the upside. I've got to review it based upon the Samsung But story. one thing, it's not Microsoft in the leadership role, it's Microsoft in the challenger role, right? And so when you have 90% market share, which is what Google has right now, you've got almost nowhere to go but up. Like, what are you going to do? Climb the last 10% sit sure, on the mountain I'm, I'm, all alone? I wasn't necessarily He's talking about leadership yeah. in AI. I'm talking I'm about saying, leadership in AI. Okay, Not good search. Point. I mean, it's obvious yeah. where market Sorry, share is. But, where but it that's the whole challenge to Google. And so we were researching this maybe two, three months ago, and I had actually said, this is on our shortlist, huge free cash flow generation. And then when we learned about the chat GPT, we thought like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This, you know, this AI really is going to start, and the way Microsoft's do, using it, is really going to start to challenge mm -hmm. the incumbent Google search engine. Brenda, you own Alphabet. You, are you, you concerned of... of their leadership role in, in search as it relates to AI. Uh, what do you make of this story? What do you think of your holding? Uh, the stock is up near 20% year to date. It is up, but if you look at the valuation of the stock, it's still very reasonable and really suggests that there still is a decent amount of skepticism that really has emerged uh, this year with the launch of ChatGPT. But I think it's really too early to make a determination that Microsoft is going to be able to gain material share here. I think the Samsung news, it's logical that they would consider um, others or at least investigate others, whether or not they're really uh, serious about that or not. Uh, remains to be seen. Uh, but I think that Google is still in an incredible leadership position within search. I think next week on the earnings call, we're going to hear probably likely to hear more about what they're doing there in terms of integrating um, uh, more AI into traditional shirts and then the new search engine launch eventually. So I don't I think it's too early uh, to assume that Google is out of the race here and not going to maintain uh, their real leadership position in search. And meanwhile, I think you have a stock that is very reasonably priced, uh, still has decent growth potential here. So we're continuing to see our position. All right, let's pivot, uh, Jenny, to Meta. 
okay, uh, because there's an interesting call today. Downgraded to neutral from buy at New Street. Their target remains 220 bucks. Stock's just shy of that now. They say, and I think this is a really good jump-off point for a conversation, the year of efficiency re-rating is likely uh, complete. 100% agree with that. And so you've gone from $89 last November to $220 right. today. It's up 150% since last November. Right. And so then you, then you start today. So as you may recall, we trimmed our position in this about two and a half weeks ago and used those proceeds to add to, to buy a position at Schwab. But you look at it today and you're like, okay, so 2023 earnings are expected to grow at 15%, 2024, 25%, 2025, um, 21%. So there's really decent growth ahead. So I think you've, like, if you missed it, if you didn't buy it already, you've missed this huge move. But there's decent upside to here. It's trading at 21 times earnings, which is you know more expensive than the market. But with that kind of earnings growth ahead, it's not crazy. So I think from here, like you can hold a core position and you might have some really decent returns. But the home runs over for sure. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I sold mine a little lower. Um, I mean, the potential bonus for them is if you do ban TikTok. We saw one state's banning it. Now it get tested mm, in the courts. So. TikTok has just been the that's that's been the gorilla in space, right? That's attractive. So if you ban that, you go to Reels and you go to more Meta products. So I think that's worth holding on to for that. I don't see the risk in it. I think the dice cast that you're finding safety in these big cap names, Google side say, but I think that'll return. So yeah, I wouldn't sell it. I'm just not buying it here. And um, we're going to do our last pivot in the first uh, block of our show as I look at energy today. Crude's down. Nat gas is up. We still have a two-handle on that gas, though, Joe. I bring it up because you bought a small position in EQT. Yeah, stepping back into EQT, it's a name that Steve and I know well. Reasonable valuation at 11 times. <clears throat> Price targets have come down from $60, now around $45. It's bounced from the lows that we saw in March at 28. You're seeing a little bit of a rise in natural gas pricing, so that's helping out as well. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I think overall, though, this gives you the exposure to the Appalachian region, which is what you want to do for All natural right. gas. You want some tea? Why don't you <laughs> recall, uh, I think it's that time, right? <laughs> Joe. Why don't you hit that? We'll hit a break. Uh, up next, our call of the day. One top analyst says, hitch a ride on this stock before it is too late. We give you the name, the trade. We'll do it next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. It's time for our call of the day. It is courtesy of Jeffries naming Uber a top pick. They say shares can surge more than 50% from here. There's a stock getting a little bit of a bump today on an otherwise whatever market. Uh, Jenny, 
You first on right. Uber. So this is in our discipline growth strategy. We added it last summer, and the thesis was exactly what Jeffries lays out here, which is all about this remarkable free cash flow generation. This is where higher interest rates actually benefits them because it hurts the competition. In the land of higher interest rates and no free money, you actually have to try to make money, and that was harder for Lyft and easier for Uber because they had this remarkable scale. I don't know if 49 is the right number, but I know it's a lot higher from here. 56% upside. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and it was one of my stock summit picks. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah. Um, thank you for the reminder. <laughs> that thesis that Jenny laid out is one that we've heard you know, from others, is that this new environment of higher interest rates has changed the game in the competition between Uber and Lyft um, acutely. What competition between Uber and Lyft? <laughs> there well, is no competition. That's right. I, the, 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 you know, and, and I think Uber's done such a good job proving itself mm-hmm. that it is the dominant force and the question becomes where does Lyft go after all this you own you own Uber I, by I the own, way that's why I, I do bring it I, up I own it I've tried to buy it a couple of times last time I purchased it after earnings I'm staying with the company now but I believe that the growth has to come really back from the strength of the company which is what mobility and advertising mm-hmm. we know delivery delivery rather kind of allowed them to get through the pandemic environment that was very strong but you need to have a strong advertising and mobility environment in the coming quarters. And I think it aligns with what we talked about before, Stephen. Economically, if we're at a point, which I know you disagree with, but if economically you're at a point where maybe not, you're not going to uh, advance from this bottom, this trough environment, but at least you're kind of wallowing at the bottom, I think that allows them through the course of time to build momentum in mobility, in advertising, and then the story can become what? The story can become free cash flow generation, a dominance that, you know, as it relates to market share with Lyft, and then the comeback in mobility and advertising. You know, I, I can't give you a good reason why I don't own Uber, and I'll probably buy it, because in the private market, you keep seeing these startups come along and that are ride-sharing. And they were tough. It was tough to fund them before SVB. Now it's impossible to do it. So it's whether a Revel where you're driving your own stuff or, or Lyft, which is on the downslope, right? Uh, I love companies that have no competition. You know what I else? mean, this is basically a monopoly business. And you have a CEO who did a phenomenal job, phenomenal job, turning this around and separating himself. So I don't know why I don't own it, probably will. You know why? You probably don't own it because you've been waiting for the market to bottom to buy anything. No, no. And this is where the, diff- where, the, where the difficulty is in constantly waiting for the market bottom. Like, we have to be really aware. That's not why I don't own it. But Uber's okay. different. Uber bottomed last June. Last that, June. I'm just saying, like, this is this market that we're in. Things are bottoming and peaking at really different po- points. Like, I sold five core positions in my portfolio this year because they all were peaking at 52-week highs. And we're, down, we're up so much. Meanwhile, we've got all sorts of things trading at 52-week lows. It's a hard market to trade in. But I don't think we should wait for macro things to, to pick off certain no, stocks. No, but certain stories have more, you know, a, a more idiosyncratic nature to them like sure. this, right? You, you, yes, you have but, had competition between the two. You, you guys can des- okay. des- describe to whatever degree that is. Yep. You heard Joe's, Joe's comment earlier. When the market changed and the environment changed and interest rates started to go up, 
that was the differentiator. Yes. Not any movement in the market one way well, or the other. Actually, the though, stock market. It, it was that pulled. deciding factor, defining factor. The but reason I didn't thing. own it, Jenny. Just wait, wait. Let me just. Say, I just need to respond to the idiosyncratic risk because you're 100% right. But that's exactly why we had an opportunity to buy Uber last summer because it traded down with all that whole, that huge like mega cap tech pullback in the summer. And as we were sifting through and looking at PayPal and Google and Uber and tons of others, one kept rising to the top. The others were down on their own, were down with reason, I think. But, you know, everything traded down last the summer. The reason why I didn't own it, not because my market call, okay, because I can't find idiosyncratic stocks, is because they were losing money. They just started hitting profitability. And I had to be sure that profitability would not only just be marginally profitable, but extend. See, that's and a good I point. Feel it. And all of these, you know, there was like a confluence of events. It was yeah. hitting profitability. It's the dynamics and interest rates, free money. Yep changing it at that that time so you're you're paying for the profitability you're paying for your ability to distance yourself in terms of the leadership that you have in the space and then on top of that you're paying for what you said on the management and, and, with dara and, right and the other thing was state legislation unionization minimum wage none of that matters now because they are raising their prices and you don't have competition to, that's going to bid against you. So that's why I think it's better now than it was a year ago. All right. Uh, let's take another quick break coming up. On ETF Edge is next. The big money piling into ESG funds still. We've got the new numbers. Our Bapazani does. He'll tell you about it next. Grade my trade. Send us your latest stock move, and the investment committee will debate it and grade it. Email us at askhalftime at cnbc.com or tweet us, hashtag GradeMyTrade. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Contessa Brewer. Here's our CNBC News update right now. Top G7 diplomats vow they will take a tough stance on China's increasing threats to Taiwan and on North Korea's unchecked tests of long-range mil- missiles. During their meeting today, the envoys also focused on ways to boost support for Ukraine and punish Russia for its invasion. The state of Minnesota has reached a settlement in its lawsuit against Juul Labs and tobacco giant Altria just ahead of closing arguments. According to the state's attorney general, the terms will be kept confidential until formal papers are publicly filed with the court in 30 days. In a statement, Juul says it's now settled with 48 states and territories paying more than $1 billion in total. 
And for a second time within the past five years, David's Bridal is filing for bankruptcy protection. The company has said it would eliminate more than 9,000 jobs across the nation. David's Bridal is now looking to sell the company, but says its stores and online platform will remain open to fulfill orders without the delay. They're probably trying to calm some nervous jitters from the brides that they hope to keep as customers here, Scott. Yeah, no doubt. Contessa, thank you. That's Contessa Brewer. Bob Pisani now on today's ETF Edge, and we're talking ESG, it sounds like, Bob. Indeed we are, Scott. President Biden said that climate change is one of the biggest threats to the world today, and the SEC chief Gary Gensler seems to agree with him. Now, on Tuesday, the House Financial Services Committee will hold a hearing to examine the SEC's priorities for 2023 and the SEC's ESG agenda, including Gensler's controversial proposal to require corporate disclosure on climate change. It's likely to get significant pushback from Republicans. Should be a very interesting hearing tomorrow. Let's talk to two ETF experts closely involved with the ESG issue. Dave Nodding is financial futurist at Betify. Arnie Nowak is the head of systemic systematic investment solutions for the Americas for DWS. That's a major ESG provider. Dave, uh, the Republicans are going to claim Gensler lacks the authority to impose climate disclosure regulations on corporations. Uh, how much uh, is corporate America going to push back? And what is the likelihood we'll see proposals get through this year from Gensler? Well, we're not going to get anything through this year. I think we're in this period where he is listening. The pushback is going to be severe, particularly around one thing, and that's ex- exposing the climate risks of your suppliers and your customers. The so-called scope three disclosures, those are the ones where there's really an administrative burden for a lot of companies to chase down how a customer uses their product, how they dispose of a product, and all of the emissions through that supply chain. That's a challenge for a lot of big companies, so I understand the pushback. All right, the international investor community is already uh, positioning their portfolios on climate change as a pertinent topic. This is a big issue over in Europe. Last week, your firm, DWS, you floated a new climate action ETF, and immediately you had $2 billion in assets overnight. Where did the money come from? Who's putting all the money suddenly into climate? Yes, that's in fact exactly what happened, uh, Bob. We launched USCA with the seed money of $2 billion. That came out of another ETF that was uh, the ticker symbol of that old ETF. USSG was looking at broad ESG investment universes, and the client decided to hone in specifically on climate-related This topics. was the government of, Swin- of Finland, is my understanding. They, were, they moved money out. It was of, not the government of Finland, but a, a private uh, pension insurance company called Elmarinen who moved out and into the new fund, yes. Okay, so it's a big issue in Europe where they're Absolutely. doing it. They're already doing this climate disclosure. I just want to, before we go, get your thoughts on crypto. We have a, a, another big issue in the hearings. Crypto is going to come up. Uh, there's still no clear understanding of whether crypto tokens or securities or, 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 or what are they? Are they currencies? And still no Bitcoin ETF out there. Yeah, and this is where the SEC really has, I think, really messed up, right? We're now regulating by enforcement with very, very sketchy ground to stand on. Luckily, we do actually have some action from a bipartisan effort in Congress. When's the last time we said that? Around stable coins. We're going to hear more about that on Wednesday as well. I'm actually really enthused by that. It may be the first step at actually getting some comprehensive regulation. You, you think we'll end this competition between uh, the, the SEC uh, and the CFTC. There's still no, jurisdictional I, infighting that prevents anything from really happening, and there's still no really good federal legislation. No, but I think we have to start carving out the easy stuff, and I think stable coins, which are basically money market funds, is where that is. Okay, much more on where ESG and crypto are likely to play out. That's coming up on ETF Edge. That's 1.10 p.m. Eastern Time, etfedge.cnbc.com. Scott, back to you. Hi, right, Bob. Good stuff. Thanks. Look forward to it.
Do not miss CNBC Sustainable Returns. Also, that's on this Wednesday. Business leaders and investors are going to share how you can make sustainability a fundamental part of your investing strategy. You can sign up for that virtual event at CNBCEvents.com. Coming up, we're trading the chips. One major semi-stock reportedly sounding the alarm about future spending. Christina Partzinevolos is going to be here live at Post 9 to break down the details next. Welcome back. Our deal of the day, Merck buying Prometheus Biosciences for about $11 billion. That deal boosting Merck's pipeline of immunology drugs. Joe, so you've talked about Merck for, man, uh, seems like every week. Absolutely. They have patent expiration risks with Keytruda. Mm -hmm. So this is a deal that had to happen. They had the partnership in the past with CGen. Um, I, I really believe this raises, you know, this turns the green light on. This alerts the investor community, not just about Merck and pharma and patent expiration, but where are they going to find the growth? And they are going to turn to biotech. And it's, it's one of the reasons why uh, a few weeks back I bought the IBB. Now that's an all cap biotech ETF. You could play the XBI, which is more small cap oriented and performing remarkably well. But I think this is the right environment to have the exposure to biotech. Well, didn't you just buy more of the IBB? I bought, I bought more IBB this morning, and okay. I was conflicted. I said to myself, all right, do I step out and do I buy XBI? But the difference between IBB and XBI, besides the equity size class, is the number of holdings. So there's 276 holdings in IBB. There's 149 holdings in XBI. So I'm getting that broader universe. I want that exposure because biotechs are going to provide the solution for the patent expiration for big pharma. That's obvious with what we heard over the weekend from Merck. Is that why you didn't buy more Merck? You think Uh, the better plays are from the biotechs that might get taken out by the Mercks? So price appreciation sometimes brings you to a position limit. And that's what's happened for me with Merck. Uh, I'm at my position limit just because of the price appreciation and the recovery that it's had in the last six weeks. The other news, Weiss, regarding um, Merck and Keytruda, as Joe mentioned, is Moderna with this promising data from the trial combining an mRNA vaccine with Keytruda uh, as it relates to skin cancer, though Moderna's down some 8% plus. Don't understand it, to tell you the truth. Spoken to the company, don't get it. They showed 44%. They, they confirmed the day they showed earlier, which is 44% improvement using uh, Keytruda, matched with Keytruda uh, on life expectancy, right? Versus conventional cancer drugs, which are zero to 20%. So I think maybe it was a sell in the news, but to me, this ratifies the platform again, and uh, I think it's completely misplaced. I read a bunch of analyst reports. I just don't. It's down almost 20% year-to-date yeah. is Moderna. Yeah, I mean, look, it's, uh, I still stick with my thesis. That's technology stock, technology platform, and it's got a tremendous pipeline. And we saw that in Vaccine Day just a week or two ago. So I like it. So I, th- I think the Merck... Um, situation is really interesting and telling. Way back when I bought AbbVie four years ago or so, the whole thesis there was they have enormous free cash flow, they have patent expirations coming up, and they're going to use that to buy other products. So, Scott, to answer your question, the obvious place you want to be is trying to buy the targets, right? But it's too dicey. 
And that's what's really hard. Unless you have unbelievably excellent specific biotechnology, you're probably not going to get it right. And I've seen people, I've seen clients and friends blown up over the years trying to buy those. So in our portfolio, we're approaching it a little bit differently. These are all in our growth portfolio, but we have Regeneron, for example, that's not cheap, trades at 19 times earnings, but they have this huge pipeline coming up. Then we have Bristol-Myers, huge free cash flow, not as amazing a pipeline coming up, trading at eight times. So the hope is either Bristol-Myers uses all that cash to buy back shares and drive shareholder value there, or they start, or they pull a Merck. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll come back. We're going to grade your trades. We're going to do it next. All right, a couple hours from now, closing bell, 3 o'clock Eastern time. Malcolm Etheridge is back today, along with Stephanie Link, Adam Parker, and then Ed Yardeni. Find out from Ed Yardeni where he thinks the market's going from here as earnings season just really gets underway. Hope you'll join me then. Let's do final trades. Brenda, what you got? I have Abbott, Abbott Labs. After two years of really focusing on nothing but COVID tests, it's time to refocus on the core business where I think we'll see me. Okay, Jenny. National retail properties blighted by the commercial real estate hate fest down 6%, 32 <laughs> years of raising their dividend, 99%, leased up 5% yield. All right. Weiss. United Healthcare, 700 years of beating top line <laughs> and bottom line. Uh, concerns after they beat and raised last quarter, concerns about growth. I don't buy those concerns. I think it's great here. Joey T. Very happy I bought JP Morgan on March 24th. I'll re reiterate being long that position and always have a Ricola in your pocket. Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> All right. I'll see you on the closing bell. The exchanges now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.